0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. They could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But no, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels to the general assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made complete, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So the writer is concluding his consideration of this, this topic of faith and faithfulness by reminding his readers... Who they were. Who they were. Not just who God is, not just what God has done, but even in that consideration, it pulls their minds ultimately to this thing, who am I? Who am I? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live a life of faith? What does it mean to be faithful unto the inheritance. And so the writer draws out this idea of, don't you know who you are, if you will, by contrasting two realities. Now remember, again, he's writing to a Jewish audience, an audience of Jewish Christians, but ones who very much know their own Jewish history. And at a certain level, the pressure coming against them is coming by their Jewish countrymen, who, among other things, I think were confronting them with the charge that you have abandoned the God of Israel. By embracing this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, who largely the people of Israel said was a false Messiah, you are actually moving away from the God of Israel. You are actually moving away from the relationship that God has with his people that was centered in a certain sense in Moses, but centered in Moses with relation to even Israel's Torah the law of Moses at Sinai you are moving away you're moving away by embracing this man Jesus so it's very appropriate to his Jewish readers to build this uh, flesh out this idea of who they were in terms of who Israel was and how all of that has now come to its realization in relation to Jesus In whom they were sharers. In a very real way, though he doesn't say this, underlying all of this is the fact that in embracing Jesus, they had not renounced Moses or the prophets or the scriptures or even Sinai itself. They had actually owned the one in whom all of those things had become yes and amen. They were the ones who were actually the faithful sons. So he's drawing this contrast and in a very sharp way, his imagery is very sharply contrasting. And I want to begin with the first part, even though uh, he does not mention Sinai, he does not mention Mount Sinai. uh, It's very clear, as we'll see, that that is what he's referring to. But since we're not Jewish people and some of us more or less have a sense of what really Sinai was all about and how to understand uh, that time and that circumstance, I just want to make a few basic general observations. The first thing is that what happened at Sinai, the giving of the covenant at Sinai was the ratifying of the Abrahamic relationship with Abraham's descendants that came out of Egypt. God made a covenant with Abraham that pertained to Abraham and his seed, his descendants. And God sent Moses to Egypt to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I've remembered my covenant. And now the time has come to liberate you and gather you to myself. And so while it's common in our culture to say, oh, there was this covenant and that covenant and the next covenant and the next covenant and they're all treated as independent, separate things, The covenant at Sinai, what we call the law of Moses, was just the ratifying, the certifying of the relationship between God and the people of Israel as the Abrahamic people. In other words, God had made a covenant with Abraham and now he's ratifying that covenant relationship with these descendants hundreds of years later that are being brought out of Egypt. In that way, he was identifying to Israel that they were the Abrahamic family. They were the Abrahamic covenant household with all that that implied and entailed. What it meant to be the people of Abraham and to fulfill their identity and their calling And so the law of Moses, that Torah, that instruction, and I like to use, I actually prefer to use the term Torah because we hear law, L-A-W, and we think of it in our Western contemporary medieval, post-medieval context of here are a bunch of moral or statutory rules and regulations that people need to comply with. But law in the Hebrew reckoning, Torah is instruction. It's disclosure that is both informative and also brings with it an obligation. And you see that even in the preamble to the Decalogue as the heart of the the covenant at Sinai. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of bondage. There's the establishing of who I am in relation to you. And so Torah is instruction and instruction, it's the communication of truth, which always brings an obligation because where there is truth, there's an obligation to the truth in practical terms. Right. But the law of Moses wasn't a list of moral, ethical, you know, arbitrary demands, do this, do that, do the other thing. It was God's Torah, and fundamentally what it did, as all covenants establish relationships, the Torah that came at Sinai defined and prescribed Israel's sonship. Remember, even when Moses brought, uh, uh, was sent to, to Pharaoh, God said, You are to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my only begotten son, my well-beloved son. Let my son go that he might worship me in the wilderness. Israel was son of God as the Abrahamic people. And the covenant defined and prescribed the relationship between them. Just like a business contract defines the two contracting parties in the relationship that they have with each other. The obligations under the relationship, the sanctions under the relationship. But covenants are relational instruments. They're not legal instruments in the sense that we think about them. The Torah, Israel's covenant at Sinai, defined and prescribed Israel's sonship with a view to Israel's identity as the Abrahamic people and their calling on behalf of the world. Now, some of this is not new to some of you. Some of it may be new to some of you. I don't know. But the issue of sonship biblically is a son is of the father. When a son fulfills his sonship, when you see the son, you see the father. That's part of what Jesus got at, right? You see me, you see the father, because I'm son indeed. A son is of the father. A son has the likeness of the father. And so the, the Abrahamic mandate was, God said, through you, Abraham, and through your seed, through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, I will bring this alienated, broken, fractured creation back to myself. That's the ultimate thing. But in going out to the nations through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed as they come to know me. Well, how would Israel do that work? By faithfully living out its sonship. When Israel lived faithfully as the son of God, according to Torah, the nations around them would see Israel and they would see Israel's God. Because the son is like the father. So the covenant prescribed their sonship on behalf of the world. In other words, their Abrahamic vocation. Well, the point is that Israel from the very beginning failed to fulfill its identity and calling. And in some ways, that kind of reaches its climax in David. If David is the climax of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise at the temporal level of kingdom, kingship, realm, dominion, David is also, in a very real way, the epitomizing failure of Israel. And I've said it before, the episode with Bathsheba... The way in which Nathan found fault wasn't you took another man's wife, although he did, and that was mentioned. You committed adultery, although he did. But the main issue is, he says, because of you, you've given the nation's occasion to blaspheme. Your kingship, and the king was preeminently the son of God who sat on Yahweh's throne, ruled in his name, In his authority, that's what human sonship is all about, carrying out God's lordship. David should have been the epitomizing testimony to Yahweh in Israel as Yahweh's chosen king. And yet what Nathan says to him is, because of what you have done, rather than testifying of Yahweh to the nations, you've given them just reason to blaspheme the God of Israel. Israel failed from the very beginning to fulfill its identity and calling. And given God's relationship with Abraham and Israel as the covenanted Abrahamic people, that left only three options. Either God's purpose for the world through Abraham, covenanted to Abraham would not be realized. God's purposes would fail. Or God would come up with a new way, a new purpose, a new arrangement, or somehow God would cause Israel, the people of Abraham, the Abrahamic son, to be Israel. He would cause Israel somehow to be Israel, to fulfill its identity and calling. And that's what you see as as Israel's history goes on and it becomes more evident, not only that they failed, but they cannot do anything but fail. They cannot be the Abrahamic people on behalf of the world. And the prophets then begin to talk about how God is going to resolve that obvious quandary. And particularly in Isaiah, and Isaiah 49 is a passage we turn back to from time to time. God says, out of Israel, I will form one who will be Israel. You are Israel, my servant. Isaiah's been talking throughout about how Israel is the servant, and this is what the servant does, and this is what the servant looks like. Now you get into the servant songs in Isaiah, and the second servant song is Isaiah 49. And God speaks of this one that he forms in the womb. He says, I formed you to be my servant. You are Israel, my servant. And with you, I will restore and regather to myself the house of Jacob. The preserved ones of Israel. But it's not enough. It's too small a thing that you should be my servant on behalf of the house of Israel. I will make you a covenant of the peoples, of the nations. In other words, I will restore Israel in this one who is Israel, but more than that, this one who is the restored Israel will fulfill the Israelite vocation, the Abrahamic vocation, which is the gathering in of the nations, the blessing of God flowing out to the nations. I will make you the covenant. I will embody this in you such that all the nations will be gathered in through you. So God's righteousness, his faithfulness, his integrity, his faithfulness to his covenant and to his purpose led him to bring forth a new Israel out of Israel, an Israel that would prove faithful, an Israelite who would embody Israel. So God ratified the Abrahamic covenant relationship with Abraham's offspring, the people of Israel at Sinai, and now in the fullness of the times, he has consummated that relationship in the son of Abraham who embodied Israel in truth. This is Galatians 3. This is Ephesians 2 and 3. This is the marrow of Paul's Israel theology. Romans 9 through 11 So the Sinai covenant then fulfilled its own prophetic and pedagogical purpose. Jesus himself said, the law, Israel's Torah, prophesied until John. It wasn't a list of do's and don'ts. It was a prophetic instrument. It was a preparatory instrument. That's why Paul says in Galatians again, this was the the law, the Torah to Israel was a pedagogue. It was to instruct you. It was to nurture you. It was to carry you along in view of your preparation to maturity to inherit what God was bringing. Now, why do I say all of that? Because that's the foundation of this first part where he says, you have not come to this. You've come to this. And we tend to, again, this is kind of an American thing, but it's not purely American, but we tend as Christians in this country to say, oh, the law of Moses was one way to get saved and it didn't work. And so God came up with a different way to get saved and go to heaven, which is this thing called grace in Christ by faith. But the only reason why that worked is because Jesus kept the works part that that the law was really telling them to do. And we get this thing all spun up and we don't understand really how these things function in God's purposes. The Sinai Covenant fulfilled its own prophetic and pedagogical purpose. It carried the people of Israel along. It it instructed them and nurtured them and disciplined them and chastised them in their sonship. Even exposing their failure to be sons, in that way leading their minds out that God would do this in another one who would come, another son. And so that covenant, that Torah at Sinai yielded at the appointed time to this new Torah, this new instruction, this new word that has come in the Messiah, John 1. The word became flesh. And tabernacled among us. The new Word of God, the new Torah, the fullness of Torah in Jesus the Messiah. So the writer now is talking about these two in, in, in the way, of, in Paul's reckoning, the age that was, the age that is. What was, what has come. What it was, what has come. And he does it in a very sharply contrasting way. Paul does the same thing in Galatians 4. Two mountains, two women, two covenants, two children, right? He says to them, you who want to be bound by Israel's Torah, then why don't you listen to Torah? If you want to be disciples of Torah, why don't you listen to Torah? Because what Israel's Torah ultimately did was build the case for and prepare for the Messiah. So the way that you become sons of Torah is to embrace Jesus. Now that's really his larger argument, but he talks about these contrasting dimensions, very much the way the writer of Hebrews does so in this first part, then, in Hebrews 12 uh, that we're looking at today, the writer is talking about Sinai. He doesn't mention Mount Sinai, as I said. He, he, he says, you have not come to that which can be touched. Already you're thinking in terms of something that transcends the natural realm as we know it and experience it. You have not come to something which could be touched. But the way he describes that and the citation that he draws from Exodus 19 and the overall context show that he clearly has Mount Sinai in mind, a mountain that could be touched. And yet, ironically, and his readers would have understood this, it could not be touched by them. It could be touched by Moses, right? But it could not be touched by them. And he even hints at that when he says in this citation, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They could not bear that command. You have come to something which is physical, or they came to something which in a sense could be touched, and yet they were not permitted to touch it, but you haven't come to that. And specifically, again, it's not just about a mountain. He's talking about that Sinai episode by which God ratified the covenant with Israel. And he, he describes it as a deeply traumatic event. Look at his descriptors. A mountain, you, uh, something associated with blazing fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, blast of a trumpet. Words that were sounding that were so overwhelming that those who heard it begged that no further words should be spoken to them. And if you know that, if you go back to Exodus 20 and you look at that, and even 19 leading into it, it was a fearful event. You'd think that this ratifying of the covenant relationship, God's brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's ratifying his covenant relationship with them there as a father with sons, and it's a fearful, terrifying event. It's not lighthearted. It's not joyful. It's terrifying. A traumatic experience. And even and this isn't in the, the Old Testament text in the, in the Pentateuch, but according to Jewish tradition, and the writer is alluding to that, Moses himself was terrified. Moses, the servant of God who spoke with God face to face. This was so overwhelming, he was afraid. He was afraid. And when all this is going on, just an overwhelming assault of sight and sound and smoke and thunder and you know, smells and things they were hearing and seeing. And it was overwhelming to them. God's voice like thunder. And they said to Moses, we can't stand this. If we hear any more, we're going to die. You go, you meet with God, you listen to God, and then you bring his words to us. And Moses recounted that later on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy as they were preparing to enter the land. He says, remember that day at Horeb, Sinai? You said, we cannot bear this. You stand between us and God. And he said, the Lord said, they've spoken well. They've spoken well. I will raise up a prophet, a mediator like you, but the people must listen to him. Again, a presaging, a pre-heralding of ultimately the Messiah who would stand between God and his people. But the point here is that that God brought this covenant ratification and the writer is treating it, the Hebrews writer is treating it in terms of terror, in terms of an assault on the senses. They could not abide to hear the Lord. And again, a a kind of heralding of where this is going to go. They won't listen to him. They can't abide him in that day, but they will ultimately not listen to him. So God's Torah, his disclosure, his revelation, his instruction to them was communicated. Here's my point. In the circumstance as much as in the covenant itself. The circumstance said everything to them about how to think about this relationship with God as much as the actual covenant itself. It told them even from the outset, and the writer emphasizes it by his images that he has here, that even though this is the ratifying of a father-son relationship bound up in the covenant with Abraham, it was a fearful, tenuous, distant relationship. God said, Don't let them touch the mountain. If they touch it, they'll die. Don't come near me. I'm your father, you're my son. Don't come near me. Don't touch the mountain. And the people are scared to death. You see, from the very outset, God was making clear that this relationship is tenuous, it's fragile. It's grounded in disobedience and unfaithfulness. And so from the very outset, it was already clear where this was going to go. Building the case for the day when God will actually make the Abrahamic people be sons indeed. And fear and distance and alienation and hostility unsettledness, all of that will be gone. And the things that the covenant relationship spoke of will actually be realized in truth. So if Sinai is the preparing of the sons, teaching them, helping them to understand what really the the true nature of this relationship with God is, will be and what really their relationship with God is then what comes at Mount Zion as he says is actually depicting the inheritance of the sons he says you have not come to that what you have come to is not what your forefathers came to what you have come to is Mount Zion the city of the living God To heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You've come to Mount Zion. Why is that important? Well, Mount Zion is an actual hill in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It was an actual hill in Jerusalem, and yet Mount Zion came to be, uh, in a sense, a metaphor for or, or representative of Jerusalem itself, and specifically as Jerusalem and Mount Zion more narrowly were the dwelling place of God. In Jewish thinking, Jerusalem is the center of the earth, not because the Jews are there, but because God is there. God is there. Psalm 48. I'll just read you a couple verses here. The psalmist says, Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. The joy, beautiful, raised above the centerpiece of the earth is kind of the idea The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in Zion's palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. Mount Zion represents the place where God dwells. And Jerusalem was really the uh, the last major city that the Israelites took in the conquest of the land. Joshua couldn't take it. It was a Jebusite stronghold. Joshua couldn't take it. Nobody after him took it. David was the one who conquered Jerusalem, and he made it the city of David. He built his residence there. He established it as the capital of his kingdom. He moved it from Hebron to Jerusalem. And later, David became convinced that Jerusalem was, in fact, the place that Moses had spoken of when God told Moses, In the future, when you enter the land, then I will show you a place where I will put my name. And that's where you're to meet with me. That's where you're to worship me. And they ordained three times of the year. You know, he said, you you will have to come up to this place to meet with me where I can be found. The central sanctuary. And Moses didn't specify where it would be. But God said, I will assign a place to put my name and my name will be there forever. And David determined, he came to the conclusion that Jerusalem was that place. And so he decided he was going to build a permanent dwelling. He would brought the ark up to Jerusalem. He'd enthroned it in a tent in the city of David near where his residence was. But he felt this, God needs to be dwelling in a permanent place. And Nathan said, do what's all in your heart. And then he came back and said, no, God said, you're not to do it. Your son Solomon will do it. Solomon built the temple, and he built it specifically, traditionally, First Chronicles says this, on Mount Moriah. If that rings a bell, Mount Moriah was the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Also associated with the threshing floor of Arana that David purchased, remember, to build the temple. But the temple was built by Solomon And now that really localized Jerusalem as the city of the living God, the the, the city of the great God, the place of God's habitation. Well, what is the symbolic significance of that? Mount Zion as the dwelling place of God represents the place where heaven and earth come together. And specifically, the sanctuary where God dwelled. The scriptures represent the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary, where the Ark of the Covenant was with the gold mercy seat above it, the capereth, as the footstool of God's throne. And the psalmist and the prophets use this language of Yahweh seated on his throne in heaven, but his feet are on the Ark on the earth. It's the imagery that says that the creator God, who in a sense sits transcendent enthroned in the heavens, has a part of his throne on the earth. His throne spans from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm. And therefore his reign also spans from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build? Where's the sanctuary? Where is my dwelling place to be that you will build? Where will I find my rest? And that comes as the apex of a long section in Isaiah where God says, I will arise. I will do it. I will send a redeemer, right? God will build his own house ultimately in the Messiah and upon the Messiah. But the point is is that Jerusalem was the center of the earth and more narrowly the temple. That was the place where God was encountered, but it was the place where heaven and earth came together. And that's significant even in Jesus as the human embodiment of God's sanctuary. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the conjunction of of the divine and the human, right? Or the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. He is the true sanctuary of God. Jerusalem, and particularly the temple, embraced both heaven and earth. And it showed that God's dominion, that God's presence filled the earth down in and through Jerusalem. It was a place where heaven and earth came together. These readers understood all of this. So when when the writer says to them, you've come to Mount Zion, he's saying you have come to the realization, the fulfillment of what Zion actually represented. You haven't come to a temple in a city, you have come to the fulfillment of what it symbolized. You have come to the conjoining of heaven and earth. You have come to the bringing together of God's space and the creation space, ultimately in the Messiah. The realization of God's presence and rule among his people and in the earth as the prophet spoke. Isaiah even hints at this because he says, In the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will become the chief of the mountains, and all the nations will stream to Yahweh's sanctuary on Mount Zion. And then a few chapters later, he says, when God raises up this, the root and stem of Jesse, he will be a banner, and all the nations will rally to him. Well, which is it? It's both. Because in Messiah is where God's dwelling place is actually realized. So when the writer says, you've come to Mount Zion, he is saying, you have come to that which had been Israel's hope and longing since the very frightful calamitous days that you spent at the foot of Mount Sinai what you longed for what was set in front of you in by way of promise even by way of fearfulness that this isn't it the terror of Sinai was pointing to something else Mount Sinai and all that it represented and all that came out of that, the building of the central sanctuary, Israel's worship, its liturgy, all of that had now come to pass. Israel's Torah in totality was now yes and amen in Jesus the Messiah. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I didn't come to abrogate Torah and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He didn't say, oh, you've broken these commandments, but I won't. I'll keep these commandments. I'm not saying Jesus broke a bunch of commandments, but it misses the point if we say that all Jesus was saying is that here's a list of uh, to-do list and you didn't do all of them, but I will. That's not what he means when he says, I came to fulfill Torah and the prophets. I am the living human embodiment of all they were talking about. He has fulfilled the father-son intimacy defined and prescribed by Sinai's covenant. And he has done so not only as the Abrahamic son, the true Israel in relation to Yahweh, but as Yahweh in relation to the people. He has fulfilled that covenant from both sides. As Yahweh unto his people, And as also the people back to God. You hear me say all the time when the prophets promised, you know, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, the day will come where Yahweh will arise. He'll return to Zion. He'll return to Zion. He'll return to Zion. How does he do that? He does that in the Messiah. That's how he comes. So just very quickly, then he has these descriptors. Heavenly Jerusalem, assembly, the firstborn, God, the judge, spirits of perfected men, Jesus, the covenant mediator. Well, we've already discussed this idea of the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem symbolized a reality that transcended it, a heavenly Just as the tabernacle itself, you know, Moses built something on the earth according to the pattern God showed him. The pattern is before the thing that's built. And so there's a heavenly reality that transcended the earthly Jerusalem. But his point is this, you've come to that place, not because you say, well, wait a minute, I haven't flown off to heaven. How have I come to the heavenly Jerusalem? You have come to the God who, who is really what makes that city or that place what it is. You've come to the dwelling place of God, as it were, because you've come to God himself. And you've come to God himself, not by walking up to him, but by being taken up in his life. In the Messiah, you are, as Paul said, you are not will be. You are seated in the heavenly places in the Messiah, raised up in the Messiah, seated in the heavenly places. Because you say, wait a minute, I haven't come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Doesn't Revelation 21 say it's going to come down to the earth at the end? And I'm not going to get into all that today. There's not enough time. But he says, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. How so? Because your lives are taken up in the living God who is, you, you are sharers in his dwelling place not by going to a place but by being his dwelling place. We are made to be the dwelling of God in the spirit. If Jesus is the essence of the sanctuary we are constituent stones in that sanctuary. We've come to God's dwelling place by being his dwelling place. That's a radical thing that, again, infinitely transcends what Sinai was all about, where God was present, but he said, stay away, stay away, stay away. Don't get close to me. You'll die. And he says, you've also come to the assembly of the firstborn. The NAS, I don't know why they do this. They say... um, You've come uh, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which can seem to imply that there are two things going on there. Uh, But it really is just the one thing. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn. It's this word ekklesia, you know, the, the gathering, the elect gathering of God. But it's not two things. It's one thing and interestingly again and the readers would have understood this this was israel's historical designation israel was the ecclesia they were the assembly they were the firstborn this was israel's claim we are the assembly the elect assembly of god's firstborn israel is my son my uniquely beloved son and now he says, you haven't, you know, and these are Israelites. And he's saying, what that symbolized is something in the Messiah that is far greater. That's who you've come to. An assembly in, associated with Jesus himself, an assembly that is enrolled in heaven. Israel was the assembly of the firstborn chosen by God, but not enrolled in heaven. In the sense that Israel as a people, they, they, they were called to be son of God. They represented that, but they didn't actually experience that in their own existence as a people. This is a covenant family whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul tells the Philippians, follow, follow after Follow the example of these and and commend these fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. And you see this throughout the book of Revelation, written in the book of life, not written in the book of life. He says, also, you have come to God, the judge, the judge of all. And judge has a negative connotation to us. Judge speaks of condemnation punishment and there's a condemnation aspect to this but God as judge simply means that he is the one who has the insight the wisdom the discernment the authority and the power to hold all things accountable to the truth to hold all things accountable to the truth, but in this sense, that he will see his creation fully conformed to the truth. He will see his creation realize the destiny for which he created it. The Psalms speak often, commonly, about God coming to judge the world and it doesn't say oh I, you know that's going to be terrible I, I, you know we don't want that to happen or that's going to be a fearful day I hope I'm not around when God comes to judge the world in the Psalms it's treated as an exultant celebratory thing the creation celebrating rejoicing one day God's going to come and judge the world It means he's going to come and he's going to sort it all out. He's going to put all things right as they ought to be. He's going to see his creation at last be delivered from all falseness and become what he created it to be. Psalm 98 says, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done wonderful things. His right hand, his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Yahweh has made known his deliverance. He's made known these purposes He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his covenant faithfulness and his faithfulness, his covenant integrity and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the deliverance of our God. How so? As they've seen what he's done with his people Israel. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy, sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre, the sound of melody, with the trumpet, sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the king, Yahweh the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. The mountains sing together for joy before Yahweh, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He will, he's coming to put all things right. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. You have come to the God who has put all things right in the Messiah. You have come to the God who has dealt with even what was the terror of Sinai. What made this this situation between Israel and God, this terror, this distance, this suspicion, this fear. God has dealt with all of that in the Messiah. He is the judge of all. And that's the promise again of creational renewal. Already having its first fruits in the resurrected Messiah and in those who share in him. And so he says, You have come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Righteous in what sense? They have entered into that truthful, right purpose that God ordained for them, they have become sons of truth. And have been perfected. And I think this echoes back to what he said um, at the end of chapter 11. All these died in faith without having received what was promised. They could not be made perfect apart from us. And so the assembly of the firstborn and, and the spirits of just men who have now been perfected in the Messiah. I think that together those things speak to the father's. Assembly of sons who are the firstborn of his new creation as sharers in the son. Who is the firstborn from the dead and now he brings all of that to its climax by saying and to Jesus you have come to Jesus the mediator of a better covenant and it is climactic because Jesus is the one in whom all the things that he has described have become yes and amen. He is the substance of God's final everlasting sanctuary. He is the substance of the renewed humanity that forms this new sanctuary. It's again, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2, throughout Paul's writings. And he is the one in whom God is judge of all. The father has committed all judgment to the son and the son has executed the father's judgment through his own life, through Calvary, through the resurrection, ultimately to the renewing of all things. In that sense, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenantal relationship between God and men, but as himself embodying that covenant relationship. He is the one in whom all of these things are summed up and become yes and amen. And he says, and he, that shed blood, that sprinkled blood of the Messiah speaks better than the blood of Abel. By referring to sprinkled blood, he's again taking his readers back to Sinai. The covenant was ratified with sprinkled blood. It was maintained with sprinkled blood, right? The sprinkling of blood, the priestly sprinkling. Moses sprinkles the blood on the book. He sprinkles the blood on the people. And then, you know, all the priestly work is sprinkling blood, sprinkling blood. His sprinkled blood, he says, interestingly, though, it's not that it speaks better than Sinai. He says it speaks better than the blood of Abel. Well, obviously, fundamentally, Jesus' blood is the blood of the covenant. The sprinkling idea carries that significance. It is the covenant ratifying blood. The renewing of the covenant relationship that God has, that that he renews with the Abrahamic people, ultimately for the sake of the whole cursed creation. And so I think the reason he mentions Abel is this brings his argument full circle. Where did he start in chapter 11? Abel. Where does he end? Abel. Abel was the first person to shed his blood in the context of the curse. Abel was the first blood to be shed under the curse and under the sentence of death. Jesus is the last to shed his blood in this sense, in that his shed blood conquered the curse and conquered death and inaugurated a new human race. A new human race not defined by death, not defined by the curse. You say, but wait a minute, we're all getting older, we're all going to die. That's not the death the scriptures are concerned with. Jesus said, whoever believes in me is passed out of death into life. Death has no hold on him. Yes, our bodies are going to die, but our spirits are alive. And our spirits already have come to the new Jerusalem, the place of the living God. And one day our bodies will share also in that resurrection life. The renewal of the inner man seated in the heavenly realm in Jesus is the promise of the renewal of our bodies to come. Jesus' resurrection took place in one stage. Ours takes place in two stages. The inner man, the outer man. But again, Jesus was the last shed blood episode under the curse in that his shed blood ended. It judged, it conquered the curse, and it conquered death. And also another point of contrast comparison is that Abel's blood, you see in the text, cried out for vindication. Jesus' blood didn't cry out for vindication. It answered that cry for vindication. Abel's innocent blood cried out for vindication. Jesus' shed blood answered that cry. He obtained vindication, not just of himself as blameless, but of Abel and all mankind. He is the vindicating of man As God intends man to be. He is the vindicating of his God. He is the vindicating of his human creature. And both, and this is my last point, both offered to God, Abel and Jesus, both offered to God a sacrifice in faith that resulted in their death. Abel did not bring his sacrifice expecting to die. He did. Because of his sacrifice, right? Jesus sacrificial offering his sacrifice in faith had its particular goal its immediate goal in his death both offered up a sacrifice in faith resulting in death and as abel's death the blood crying out from the ground looked in a sense said god sort this out god vindicate me god said i have vindicated you in my son I have vindicated the world. I have dealt with the curse. I have dealt with death. I have dealt with all that defiles, all that corrupts, all that is false. And Jesus too offered up his sacrifice unto death in faith. In faith. He went to the cross believing his Father. He had to go through that to be resurrected. He had to trust his father for that, didn't he? The hour has come and what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, it's for this very hour that I came. But in faith, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I will be vindicated. But he had to entrust himself to the father in that. Jesus also was a man of faith. There's the point. If you want to do the roll call of faith, you put Jesus at the end of it. Even our faith is the living out by him and in him and through him of his faith and faithfulness through us. So what I want you to all think about is, again, this this dynamic of what the writer is saying here. I think this has been my experience Probably most Christians that I've known think of of a faithful Christian life, a godly Christian life, in terms of a more disciplined, perhaps better informed version of themselves. They think of the faithful Christian life as me living a better, more disciplined life. And whatever notions of renewal or transformation are, are to come, all of that will come when I die and I go to heaven. But it's me simply being a better me, a more informed me, a more disciplined me, a more obedient me, a more uh, whatever, reverential me. But as Paul said, if any man is in Christ, new creation. That's how it's actually written. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, new creation. I have been crucified with Christ and I live but it's no longer me. Christ lives in me. The life that I live in this world, in this mortal flesh, the life that I'm living is life in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live because of the faithfulness of the Messiah. Paul says, Christ is your life. You know, we tell people in evangelism, do you want Jesus to come into your heart? Receive Jesus into your life. None of that is biblical. Jesus said, unless you consume me, you have no life. I am life. I am resurrection. Jesus put to death life as we know it. We've all lived our whole lives outside of of our salvation. We've lived our lives in the matrix, in a delusion. We've lived our lives in something that Jesus condemned and put to death in himself. Life as we know it as human beings was put to death 2,000 years ago. It really doesn't even exist. So to the extent that we are doing what we do, we are living a lie. We're living a delusion. It's not coming to Jesus to get saved. It's recognizing that in him is the truth of human existence. Unless I am found in him, I'm living a lie. I'm actually living out a way of being human that Jesus put to death. It doesn't even really exist anymore. Except in my mind. In my alienation from God. So the discipline of faith and faithfulness are, have to be directed towards the reality of new creation. Depen, um, repentance is a head issue. It's not a behavior issue. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep your heads and your hearts in that place. That realm. You're seated with the Messiah in the heavenly realm. That's where you live. That's where your true existence is. That's who you are. You died. Your lives are hidden with Christ and God. When Jesus is manifest in his glory, you will also be manifest in the same glory. He is your life. Therefore, here's how you think about your lives under the sun. It's not reform yourself, live a better life, you know, be be more godly in some sense, be more religious, whatever, put away your bad habits, start having good habits. It's live out the truth of new creation. Ultimately, it's discerning and holding tightly to who we are. Already we are sons, though it doesn't presently appear what it shall be. Everywhere the structure in the scripture is, this is what is true, live that out. Here's who you are, live it out. Be who you are. If you want to know the scripture's ethic, it's be who you are. Be who you are. But you can't be who you are if you don't know who you are. And I think so many Christians just think about this again as, I'm going to behave better until I go to heaven, Because I'm forgiven. And that's lying against the truth. Behaving better is lying against the truth. Right? He says, don't you know you've come to Mount Zion? we got to live in that space. And that's a head work, right? That's a head work. Because the world is pulling at us and our jobs and our families and everything keeps our head down here, right? And Paul says, it's not forget about this, ignore it. It's Christify all of this. Live all of this through the lens of my life is hidden with Christ and God. Whatever you do, whatever, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it with that. As that sort of a human being. Christians, those who are of the Messiah. Father, I pray that these things make sense. I pray that they ring true in our hearts. I know that for many here, these are not new things at all. Perhaps they even feel a little bit tedious. But this is the constant reminder of the scriptures and the apostles and pastoral ministry is calling us back again to the repentance of rethinking who we are owning again the truth of lives hidden with Christ in God. It's a great mystery to recognize this fact that we have been raised up in the Messiah, that we no longer live, that the us that we is still alive and walking on the earth is a new us that is the fullness of the Messiah out in the world in the lives of people. We are truly Christ people, and we have to discipline ourselves to live in this way. We have to discipline ourselves moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. And I pray that you would help us to not be people who are navel gazers and are chasing our tail and constantly trying to manage uh, the circumstances of our lives or the behaviors of our lives and that we would instead seek to, in all things, grow up into Christ who is the head. If we will pursue him in that way what we call our practical living will take care of itself and we will understand the father's discipline and we will understand and live into even our present reception of this inheritance and we will be those who live in light of the day when all that we enjoy and have and possess now will be brought to its consummate fullness help us in this way Help us to be those who are truly manifesting the lives of sons in the world, fulfilling the Abrahamic vocation that all the families of the earth would be blessed as they come to see these truths. We ask these things, Father, again in Christ's name, praying that he would be exalted in us, in the church, and in the world. Amen.